Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper on Sunday, September 8th, 2019. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we are uh, have spent a full week back in civilization out in uh, New Jersey slash Pennsylvania, New York. And we had a uh, packed week. Would you say it was a packed week? I'd say it was a packed week. Mainly it was recovery week. Both. All things considered. We did have a big bike ride on Saturday. The yes. Sourlands Spectacular, which is in uh, the Sourlands near uh, Hopewell, New Jersey. Is that the way to describe and for it? for once, it was indeed spectacular. It was unbelievable. It was a beautiful day on Saturday. It was probably mid-70s, super clear. And, you know, sometimes, I guess, you just notice the, the surroundings more than others. And this just seemed to make a tremendous impression. It was beautiful, hilly, but spectacular scenery, just great. Yeah, we did about... 35 and a half miles. Yeah. And we even ran into a fox hunt. We did. Which, uh, horses, hounds, we didn't see a fox. We saw a dead fox later on in the ride. Hit by a car. Um, but uh, probably running from the uh, hounds. Probably, but, um, yeah. It, uh, it was amazing. It was, amazing. Like, it was like a Downton Abbey scene. Everyone was wearing, you know, the coats and everything, and, uh, they have hounds. They don't have three hounds. They have like 15 hounds, and it's a little scary. Oh, maybe going... more than that. Yeah. But uh, you forget how beautiful New Jersey is. Mm. If you're, you know, mainly you're along the turnpike, etc., there are beautiful farms and gardens and rolling hills. It was a spectacular natural landscape. Yeah, and it's hidden away. I mean, it's Hopewell is a real town, it, uh, and, and you wouldn't have thought that there is so much uh, scenery uh, no, a few miles in any direction. There's just, uh, your usual, you know, suburban suburban splendor. Right, but this is in the yeah, but not really splendor. But this is really mountains uh, right near Hopewell, and it was fantastic. I mean, look, we've ridden all over the world at this point. Certainly, a lot of Europe. All over all the over world. The, I'll stick with that. <laughs> and uh, we haven't seen uh, basically fox hunts, but beyond that, uh, this matches this matches up. It really does. I mean, every. Part of Europe has a different character, but this was beautiful. Yeah, beautiful ride and uh, excellent lunch provided by the uh, sponsors right. of the ride afterwards. Well, Surprisingly excellent. Brick Tavern. And uh, so nice it was day. a good day. Yeah. Although it takes something out of you. But now back to business. Back to business. Well, back to business. What did we see? What did I see? I guess I take credit for this. When I open up the paper during the week and they have an article about uh, the film series on Lincoln uh, Lincoln Center Retrospective, a full-page article about Say Amen Somebody, a film that we saw in 1982 uh, out of nowhere, featured in the New York Times, which was, we, we thought was fantastic. And you remember that, Tim. Yeah, 1982. It's a documentary about gospel music right. with uh, some you know famous old-time singers. Uh, not, you know, not famous to us. I mean, we love gospel music. We know nothing about it mm-hmm. and didn't know anything then. Right. Um, but uh, some real stars. Uh, um, well, the O'Neill brothers. Thomas Dorsey, yeah. uh, Willie May Ford Smith. Uh, just uh, a lot of. Well, but what part of Wesley Morris's singers. point, and he writes an article about it in the Times, and I'm not the hugest Wesley Morris fan. I didn't even love this article, but he made one point that I think. Is kind of right, which is that you know it's natural to compare this film with the film that just came out, the Amazing Grace film, 
uh, with Aretha Franklin, uh, which is about another concert in the early 70s. And, you know, Aretha Franklin's Aretha Franklin. It's not like anybody who sings gospel's Aretha Franklin. She stands alone. But these are folks that, at least in Morris's view, are journeymen by comparison. But they're quite good. And Here's what he says. Yeah. How do you, how do you pack that much beauty, wit, passion, musicality, muscle, raggedness, and poise into one song, into one note? Yeah. And I think that absolutely captures it. Well, that's the, fair. The music uh, is captivating. Yeah. Listen, and we thought it was amazing when we saw it in 1982. Uh, and, uh, and, and we have uh, we've the been album. listening we to the soundtrack. If you have the opportunity, whether it's a Lincoln Center or somewhere else, go. And I'm sure we're not going to get into how you might pull it from what, whatever service. But if you get a chance to see or listen to Say Amen Somebody, and we're going to, just so you know, well, we're going to play a cut from one of our favorite songs from Say Amen Somebody at the end of the podcast, the famous and identified in the article by Wesley Morris correctly as an outstanding song, Jesus Dropped the Charges. Uh, right. You have set that to look forward to. So it was just startling to see but that. But the whole soundtrack the is great. Yeah, Many, it, is, uh, it is. You were yeah. playing some of it before. And one song, yeah. oh, that's a good song. That's yeah. a good song. They're all good songs. Yeah. It was so, uh, pretty amazing. So that was uh, nice to uh, think back on the, that movie. Yeah. Um, nice to know it's not forgotten. Uh, as for current events, they just finished the tennis tournament. We should say something about the tennis just because it's kind of interesting. Uh, by the time you hear this, it's going to be old news that Nadal won again. He beat uh, Medvedev. And it had unfolded, and Tamsin will tell me, this isn't second guessing, this is first guessing, in our discussion of it. You figured Nadal was going to win, and but here's what's interesting about it. When you watch these young players and Nadal plays, and I say young players, Nadal's 33, which for tennis is not young, and he's playing folks who are 23 or 24 or whatever. And uh, when they, you know, they have their first few rallies, uh, and you watch for the first 15 minutes, they have all the strokes he has, and they have even a little bit more athleticism, and you can tell that they're younger. But uh, the top men tennis players, be it Federer, be it Djokovic, be it Nadal, they win. And then, frankly, they win all the majors. And they've been winning all the majors for the past three or four years. Andy Murray stuck in there one or two, and he's also 32-33. That's what's fascinating about it. It really highlights the mental strength necessary to win these matches. They're great matches, but it takes so much mental tenacity and concentration and the ability to stay with it when you miss a shot, when you fall behind. There's something about being that veteran who's got the mental strength to do it that's what really separates them from the other two, and it separates them every single time. So even watching this, uh, Medvedev at the beginning, six foot six, tremendous reach, tremendous strokes. Uh, Nadal's, you know, an impressive physical specimen, but he's not six foot six. And as we discussed it before, you know something, it looks at, it could easily be Medvedev, but the truth of the matter is, as it goes on, as they wear down, Nadal will find a way. It's exactly what happened. Found a way in the fifth. Well, how set. do you explain the women though? The women are different because it, the women. What you have there is, is you have Serena Williams, you have everybody else. And Serena, and I'm, I'm making the age point. So Serena's uh, on her own. She doesn't have three cohorts like uh, the three I mentioned a moment ago on the men's side. So the question is, is the veteran Serena going to win? And the truth of the matter, she does have the mental tenacity and, uh, mental tenacity and the mental edge. But whereas Nadal, uh, Djokovic, and Federer are very comparable to the athleticism of these younger guys, maybe they give up a little. It's close. Serena's given up a lot. And uh, when you saw last year with Naomi Osaka, uh, you saw that match, I know, 
And you can see that again this year against the young Canadian. Serena doesn't move on the court like these young women move on the court. So she's giving up so much in terms of athleticism that even though she has the mental edge, she can't close that gap in terms of the band. She beats a lot of people. She got to the final. Right. But um, it's too much to ask. But if it's close, if it's close physically, the guys, in the mental, and it's not just that they're older. They've gotten to this point because they have that mental edge. That's what put them on the top of the mountain to begin with. That's what separated them. Mm -hmm. uh, and frankly, it's very impressive when you hear them interview. They're very well-spoken. They're very thoughtful. They're very self-possessed. It's, it's really something. So it, it's fun when the tennis comes around. Um, enjoyed watching some of that. But you had a great article about Jansen bathing suits, Tamsin. Yes, from the travel section. From the travel section. And, I, I think uh, I, I spotted it. Well, we both spotted it. Well, I saw it. Um, yes. But uh, you zeroed in on I it. I zeroed in. Anything to read an article about girls in bathing suits. That's right. I guess. And uh, this is by Bonnie Sweet. And she is writing basically about the history of the Jansen bathing suit, if not the history of uh, the modern you know, one-piece yeah, bathing suit. I think that's fair. And uh, it really happens in Portland. There was a business called the Portland Knitting Company, owned by a pair of brothers. And they had a Danish partner named Carl Jansen. And uh, these brothers actually were part of a rowing club. Oh, really? I didn't yes. know that. Yeah. Somebody in the rowing club came to them and wanted a, you know, had a design in mind for a superior rowing costume, a one-piece kind of unitard. Really? And because uh, the Jansons knew about, they had this knitting company, and Carl Jansen figured out how to um, knit a wool unitard suitable for rowing mm -hmm. um, that was, you know, light enough because, you know, uh, you know, eight or ten pounds of wool <laughs> when it gets want, wet, right, right. not so comfortable. And so that gets them started in about 1913. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing leads to another. It becomes a swimming costume. Uh, men want it. Women want it. Everybody want it, wants it. Because up till then, and you found this amusing, you know, there were all kinds of rules about what even men had to wear yeah. um, to go swimming right. on a public beach. They had beach. to wear tops. Yeah, they couldn't be topless. They had to have some kind of little skirt covering the dicey bits. Really? Yes. You couldn't... Uh, it, it was all very sort of prudish. Yeah. And um, this uh, really revolutionized the form. Now, other people would come up with similar basic ideas. Uh, there was a famous uh, female swimmer, Annette Kellerman, from Australia, who um, wore, you know, kind of somewhat of that idea of a costume, and there were similar costumes that are used in the 19, I think, 1912 Olympics by women. Yeah. Um, but it's really the Janssen company that gets it going. That Janssen logo with the diver, mm -hmm. uh, the diving woman, becomes very popular. In fact, right. it becomes a sticker that uh, everybody's putting, everybody wants. Not, they send them around to the shops that are selling Janssen, um, but uh, everybody wants one. They want um, the bathing suit. But, yeah, know. they want to put it on their cars, etc. They're outlawed in uh, Massachusetts yeah. uh, as a danger to public sa well, safety. Well, you can imagine people would go off the road. But there also one of the themes in the article, or at least one of the ads, uh, it's sort of the, uh, the evolution from uh, bathing to swimming. In other words, right. it, it right. wasn't just a matter of the suit wasn't just merely suitable for lying under the sun. You could actually swim in it. 
Yeah, you've seen those old-timey, um, you know, like skirts and blouses right. and, and get-ups people used to wear to dip into the water. This really allowed you to swim, and uh, it was immensely popular all over the world. She has a wonderful story of her parents, I think, in Hong Kong meeting. Uh, her father's a lifeguard. Her mother is a bathing beauty in a Janssen suit, ah. and uh, they have a picture of that. And everybody has worn them, you know, uh, Princess Diana, on and on and on and on. Um, you know, eventually they have a lot of competition. Uh, the company has uh, been sold, etc. cetera. Um, but uh, a few mementos remain. There was an enormous, I guess, fiberglass statue of uh, the diver, the diving woman oh, really? uh, outside a store in Daytona. The store goes out of business, and uh, they sell the statue. It gets shipped to Washington State, and the townspeople clamor. It's a local icon, oh, really? and they manage to get it back. Oh, wow. Um, so that was a charming uh, article. I've read, I, you know, I've worn my share of Jensen suits. Really? Oh, yeah, when you were growing up. Um, and, you know, I swam on the local swim team, mm -hmm. and so we wore the Jansons. Oh, good. How were they? Fine. Not as not as fabulous as the bathing suits are today. Oh, well, you know, with the materials. lycra yeah, and, the, yeah, yeah. you know, all the miracle fabrics right. that will hold up to anything. We had kind of, um, you know... Not very forgiving nylon suits mm -hmm. with several layers mm -hmm. for modesty, uh, but you know, flattering, I guess. <laughs> More flattering than wearing the big skirt and the sailor yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, blouse. All right, so this is also the first Sunday of the football season, so we have to say something about that. The article in the Times is very interesting by Greg Easterbrook. What is the future of football? Interesting to me because. Uh, the headline is, don't believe the naysayers. Fundamentally, the game's prospects look good. Uh, this is interesting for two reasons. Uh, one is, um, uh, there are a lot of naysayers who think uh, that uh, the game is, is dated and it's on the way out because in large part because it's unsafe and also because the leader uh, of the pack in terms of making uh, that presentation is the New York Times itself. The New York Times probably has as many articles about how uh, Football shouldn't be played, and it's dangerous, and this concussion or that concussion, and future and serious damage, as, as it does about the games themselves. That's clearly where they stand. And yet, Greg Easterbrook uh, writes this. He is not a sports writer. I think he's an economist primarily, so he's not doesn't work for the NFL. But he makes the observation that in fact, there's every reason to believe the NFL is going to do well, whether you like it or you don't. And in fact, notwithstanding that people uh, talk about the uh, deleterious health effects, uh, players are playing. The what effects? Deleterious. That's okay. a word. Look it up. All right. And uh, But that, in fact, players are having longer careers than they've ever had in the history of football, that concussions are down, that safety measures are being taken. Um, he says, the, and, he, and, he see, and he identifies some things that could be taken, some other measures that could and maybe will be taken in the next few years. He says the real uh, danger in terms of concussions and serious injuries um, is in youth football. Uh, he says that what they should really outlaw is Pop Warner football. And that's where many more con concussions take place, or even high school, many more concussions than the pros. Because so the you kids... wouldn't play football at all till you get no, to high school. Flag football, he says. Flag. The kids should play flag football. He says because the brain, the skull, is not fully formed. That when that's when the kids are vulnerable. He makes a convincing case of that. Uh, so he wants flag football for that. But as, as for regular football, he said, you know, the reason it's going to be more successful than ever is, is what a lot of other people have identified: gambling. 
I mean, gambling is going to be a huge boon to the NFL. It creates a lot more interest. You see it in 12 different states now, online gambling, including your favorite uh, Garden State, New Jersey. Uh, and uh, you've got people sitting there watching games, making bets in the third quarter, saying as to who's going to score the next touchdown. It's not just beating the point spread. And he's probably right about that. So football will be around. The team that might not be around the way they're constructed now is the New York football giants. Uh, but even then, I'm going to take a contrary view. They got blasted by the Cowboys, no surprise, today. But, you know, I uh, I uh, like the Giants. I think by the end of the season, people are going to be looking up to the Giants for one reason. The Giants are contrarians. The whole league's going pass-happy. The Giants are building a team that runs the ball. There's a benefit to that. The benefit of being the outlier, because everyone's defense is filled with players designed to defense the pass. They're lighter, they're quicker, they're thinner. If you're the team that runs the ball, you play that team, you have an advantage. So we'll see. I'm not giving up on the Giants yet, but this is not their year. How about the Mets? Are you giving up on the Mets? I am giving up on the Mets. It's mm-hmm. now official. But they gave us a good ride. They gave us a good run against all <laughs> against all odds. All right. Um, new book about Mrs. Gustav Mahler. Alma Mahler. Alma Mahler. Yeah. Uh, called Passionate Spirit by Kate Haste. And uh, there's a review in the Wall Street Journal this weekend. Um, and uh, some people may have not have heard of Alma Mahler until 1964 when she died. And uh, Tom Lehrer uh, noticed the um, obituary. And it seems she had uh, seduced uh, every important artist in Vienna at a certain point. I think he said in Europe. Basically. In Europe. In Europe, in yes. Europe. Yeah. Um, and uh, she was married to Mahler. Uh, she actually had uh, an affair with and then married Walter Gropius, the architect, the Bauhaus, founder of the Bauhaus mm-hmm. school and uh, famous architect. In fact, I mean, Mahler knows about this. Gustav knows about this. He go, who does he go to for advice? I know. Sigmund Freud. Who else? Who well, advises him to, you know, let let Alma do her thing. Sometimes a cigar. To keep the marriage together. Sometimes a cigar um, is just a cigar. Uh, said, you know, Mahler, yeah. um, actually, she marries Mahler. Mahler is like 20 years older than she is when she's married him. She's already had some, uh, you know, romantic entanglements with such famous people as uh, Gustav Klimt. Yes, the artist, right, uh, and uh, you know her music teacher and others. Um, but her father dies when she's young, and so she's always looking for a father figure. Is the theory, and uh, she comes upon Mahler, who was forty-one, mother fixated, Jewish, sexually inert, and fearful that he might not live long. He was low-hanging fruit. <laughs> is the way. Uh, the article states yeah. it. Uh, so right. she marries him at 22, goes on to Walter Gropius. Uh, you know, she um, he is not always fully attentive to her. So she turns, she has a um, kind of a raging affair with the um, painter, the artist Oscar Kokoska, who is obsessed with her body. She finds that overwhelming, goes back to Gropius, marries Gropius, has a child. And um, then... Uh, you know, when he's not paying enough attention or he goes off to war or something, uh, she moves on to, uh, as they describe it here, she seduces a 20-something Jewish poet from Prague, Franz Werfel, a tubby youth she sought 
to mold. He will be the uh, writer of the book Song of Bernadette. Bernadette, right, yeah. Uh, and so, but, uh, you know, it, she, she seems to have been quite enticing. Yeah. Although, as reported by one of her daughters, when she was pushing 40, she was no longer beautiful. She looked like a laundry sack. That's but she had only to enter a room to command total attention and could still arouse desire. Uh, so, there you go. quite, uh, you, well, know, you know, I think we should mention, a fascinating person. So, Tom Lehrer, for those uh, not entirely familiar, was uh, a, uh, I'm going to say a math professor, math professor at MIT, who also was a great uh, creator and singer of satirical songs, who was very popular in the early 60s. Many uh, of them political. Many of them political. Yeah. And, and his song, aptly named, called Alma Mahler, uh, <laughs> told the story of her affairs with these three gentlemen that she married and, and others in between. And it's, it's a humorous song. If you get a chance, you can look that up. It's L-E-H-R-E-R. -E uh, he's funny. He was funny. I think. He's very funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there was a, you know, here's something, here's a positive article. We like to have something positive every once in a while, you know, it just stands on its own, give you reason to hope. Um, and it's an article in the Times called Building a Colossus to Feed the Masses. That sounds almost biblical, right? Uh, it's a company called App Harvest, who is building a huge greenhouse in Kentucky, which will cover 60 acres and yield 45 million pounds. No, wait a pounds. minute. I thought it was more acres than that. Well, no. Are you sure it, it's it, only it's, 60? It is only 60. Uh, yield 45 million pounds of produce. Trust me, I double-checked it. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that uh, what they, what's this fellow decided who's behind it, whose who's name I'll give you in a second here. Jonathan Webb. Jonathan Webb. He's, you know, he's, he's starting, uh, st he's from Kentucky. Kentucky, of course, being a great source of uh, tobacco. And uh, he got it in his head that Kentucky obviously has to switch, and, but it still has the potential to be a fantastic resource. Well, it's not just tobacco. They, they've lost the whole coal mining yeah, industry. That's true, too. Right. Okay. So, but they have so they land. need something to replace. Right. And so, uh, he's trying to think up uh, what could be... Right. So this is your classic startup, except it's not uh, high-tech. It's not all about software. But it's using all these high-tech methods in order to grow these vegetables organically and efficiently and uh, and in a way that can compete with vegetables all over the world including primarily tomatoes is what they're focused on in this article more than anything else and most of our tomatoes come from foreign countries it turns well, out well come from mexico and canada yeah jersey tomatoes standing. Uh, who does he go to for help in building this um greenhouse the dutch yes the dutch the dutch the great uh you know greenhouses um, yeah, great, uh, what would you call them, uh, horticulturalists, but also they're great at all this technology. Exactly. And uh, so they have these huge greenhouses. it's going to have solar energy yeah. to uh, control the temperature, etc. It's going to use recycled rainwater, okay? And none of the water is going to go back into the soil or whatever. It's going to be, you know, um, recycled throughout the system. Okay. So it, uh, it, all their insect control will be done through biological means, not chemical. Uh, so it's trying to be very um, green, yeah. <laughs> as you might say, and uh, seems pretty exciting. And he seems to think that this kind of ag tech is a um, important uh, right. way to go in the future. And it seems to have an angel fund, angel fund behind it. It's, it's something called Rise of the Rest. A lot of the money comes from Steve Case, who's the co-founder of AOL, and Rise of the Rest 
The managing partner of Rise of the Rest is J.D. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, which was a Hughes book a few years ago, mostly about the politics in, in places like this, in Kentucky and West Virginia or whatever. But this is the idea. You know, how are you going to put these folks, put these towns on the map economically? And the answer is a high-tech venture, which takes full advantage of their natural resources. So who knows? I mean, it could be a fantastic thing, and they're, always, they're already looking forward to other greenhouses in other locales. Yeah, but will they? Just tastes like supermarket. No tomatoes. reason to think it won't be good. We'll find out. That's a lot of reasons to think it won't we'll be good. We'll find out. Mr. Sunshine. You need Mr. Sunshine. Uh, we'll find out. You know, I live in Jersey. Okay. I understand. It's, it's all about the tomatoes. Right. Look, obviously, there's nothing going to beat a, a local grown tomato. But if most of the tomatoes come from, as you said, uh, where is it, Mexico and where else? Canada. Canada. Well, then that's where most of the tomatoes are coming from. So can they compete with those? I think they can. All right. The challenge is to not just, uh, you know, grow a lot, but grow right, a we'll lot see, we'll good. See. We'll see. All right. So there you have. Now, this was, uh, there was an article a couple of weeks ago. This is Museum Update, isn't it? This is a Museum Update. Um, it's, it's, a, it's just a couple, it's not really late, but uh, I was looking at an old newspaper, and uh, there was a mention of a an exhibition uh, that's uh, in uh, Chicago, actually, at the Art Institute. And uh, it is called In a Cloud, in a Wall, in a Chair, Six Modernists in Mexico at Mid-Century. And it just opened, actually, uh, September 6th. It's going to be there till January 12th. What's interesting about it is it takes the work of six women um, who worked in Mexico at the time. Only one is uh, Mexican-born, but it really kind of points up what's going on. I mean, we're, we're familiar with uh, Frida Kahlo um, and Diego Rivera, etc. And uh, this exhibition tries to explore artists actually in a variety of media, um, textiles, furniture, um, photo montage uh, that... Uh, you know, have been uh, somewhat uh, ignored. I think this is interesting because in this day and age, I think we just think of Mexico, we think of drugs, we think of kidnapping, mm -hmm. we think of immigration issues. And you forget, uh, you ignore what an amazing, you know, cultural history it has. And the very, you know, interesting kind of um, involvements of, Europeans, but many Americans in the development and exploration of a lot of their cultural traditions, okay. especially around the mid-century. You know I love to collect mid-century Mexican silver, yeah. um, which was, uh, to some extent, uh, revived by an American during that period, William Spratling, uh, in the Tosco area. So uh, this sounds like an interesting uh, article, has some interesting people in it, including Annie Albers, wife of Joseph Albers. Uh, famous artist. Okay. All right, moving right along. Another fun article was uh, actually about famous Viking ships, okay? Mm -hmm. And let me just say a little shout-out to Norway here, okay? Yeah. What you don't realize is I've been looking at the download numbers, and we had a flurry of interest from Norwegian downloaders no surprise in this to me. podcast you know why? recently. Why? Because they're all Vikings, and Vikings go for us. <laughs> Vikings go for us. You know, 
we have only met a few. We've never been to Norway, yeah. right? Have we ever been to Norway? I, I don't, don't think, think so. so no. um, and we've only met a few Norwegians. Mm -hmm. But they were fantastic people, you have to say. We had I'm trying to, we I'm had just... three au pairs, okay? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And all fantastic. Yeah. Benta, Gris, Stain. Right. Um, just uh, fabulous young people. And they were all very uh, physical, physically fit. You don't think they're uh, downloading very pleasant. it? That's not who's downloading it. I, who, for all I know, Gree has got nothing going on. <laughs> and she's downloaded about uh, 100 of our podcasts. Um, I, I find that podcasts. hard to believe, yeah. Um, remember, Stain was such a, he was a... Um, Big guy. He was archery. A, archery. Yes. Um, and so, and I remember, um, I said to Stain, is your father an archery? He said, no. And I forget what his father did, some kind of sport. I said, well, why don't you do that? In America, you know, he said, my father said to me, it is not for me to tell you what to do. That's, uh, that's, and that's I said, you... that would never work in America. No. Parents tell the children what to do. Well, it's, it's, so, it's tough to hire an au pair who has that point of view. That makes you a well, they, they were so pleasant yes. and uh, <laughs> so kind of open-minded, right. a breath of fresh air. Yeah. So uh, we tend to have very positive thoughts about Norwegians. Okay. And anyway, the Vikings, yes. Everybody seems to feel that way lately. Yeah. Vikings yeah. are, you know... Super right. popular, right. okay. Even though they're um, awful people. There's an HBO show. There's right. Lost Kingdom, the Game of Thrones. They do a lot of Viking stuff. Do they? Uh, Viking type stuff. There's going to be a new HBO show called The Beforeigners, mm. and that is interesting. Apparently, um, the premise is that uh, people somehow there are f these flashes of lights, and people from past history turn up in contemporary society hmm. so they have an actual there's an episode where some former like viking marauders or yeah. something are now like um you know police detectives really? in uh, some city mm. uh, looking into stuff yeah. so anyway sounds terribly exciting yeah but meanwhile there's a crisis in oslo mm. okay yes at the um viking ship museum mm. There are two famous ships, the Osberg and the Gokstad. Mm. Okay, so my Norwegian is not so good. I don't know how you really pronounce Osberg, but it's a very famous ship. It's in all the survey books I teach it. Okay, right. if you want, you know, it was a Viking ship made of wood, beautifully carved, buried with various dignitaries and peacocks. And you know other kinds of uh, mementos um, built probably around I don't know uh, the ninth century, like eight twenty. Uh, they can they can actually age it by uh, figuring out when the ch the tree that it's made of was chopped down. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, um, these uh, ships there are two of them that they have that were excavated during the nineteenth century, and uh, they're at risk. Because the museum was built uh, to withstand or to host about 40,000 visitors a year. With all the popularity of things Viking, they're getting about 500,000 visitors. That means, uh, you know, uh, humidity, temperature changes, dust, vibrations, and this wood, after, you know, several thousand years, is a little fragile. 
So they're quite worried. So the Norwegian government has, in fact, uh, earmarked $200 million to build a new container for mm. them next door and to work on preserving these. All right. It's, you know, it's not going to be ready for like uh, six or seven years. I can wait. Uh, but yes. meanwhile, meanwhile, they're getting very picky about uh, who can, um, you can visit, visit yeah. the ships. So if you're planning... You know, uh, plan ahead. Plan ahead. And do Check that it right. out. Yeah. And if you can't make it there, apparently you can go to Illinois and see a life-size replica of the Gokstad, mm. which was actually uh, made for uh, one of those early World's Fairs, the Columbian Exposition uh -huh. in 1893. Yeah. And they actually um, came across the Atlantic Ocean in it. Really? Yeah, to well, Chicago. Okay. So it's seaworthy, or right. it was, for a few minutes in okay. 1893. Well, all right. Uh, I'm more likely to go to Illinois. Um, the We're going to close. Sometimes we close with an obituary, but this is uh, different. This is better. This is about Bob Newhart, who's 90 years old, still going strong. He's Bob, only 90? He's only 90. Uh, Bob Newhart came on the scene in uh, 1960, maybe even a little before that, but he had a very big comedy album 1960 called the button-down mind of bob newhart the first blockbuster comedy album sold more than a million copies hit number one of the charts won grammy for best album beating out frank sinatra and nat king cole well of course they're long gone uh and bob newhart is still doing stand-up at the age of 90, of course, Bob had two very successful is television he really shows. standing up he's standing up so they say so they say he's, uh, you know, he's doing. You know, Bob. Uh, a lot of people should be familiar with Bob Newhart. You know, you remember they had a thing in uh, Mrs. Maisel, that the the husband stealing Bob Newhart routines, yeah, and performing them. Yeah, and this takes place in the late fifties, early sixties. He actually saw that on the television. He thought it was pretty funny. He said uh, the guy was terrible. Uh, he's supposed to be terrible, but he loves the show. But uh, yeah, he's been on like the Big Bang Theory and stuff like that. Really? Yeah, he, you know, the guy's still making a living. Yeah, he's uh, look, he's always had uh, this kind of stammer, kind of funny delivery, kind of halting, and he looks like he's not up to it. That's part of his persona. As a matter of fact, when he started the first Bob Newhart show, the producer came up to him and said, "You know, can you cut down on the stammering?" And Newhart said, "You know, this stammer got me a house in Beverly Hills." So he's uh, <laughs> he's uh, stuck with it. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, the, the article in the Times is just an interview talking about his various adventures and how what he he's still doing some of the same routines he did in his 60s. I mean, I've always thought he was funny. I haven't seen him at the age of 90. They did ask him. This was kind of interesting, I thought. How his marriage has lasted so long. He's in Hollywood. He's 56 years married. He said, that's so unusual. He said, no, that's actually, it's not unusual. For comics, and he mentioned Buddy Hackajack, Benny, George Burns, Alan King, their marriages last a long time. It's the actors and actresses who marriages don't last a long time. And the reason that the comics marriages last a long time is because they all have a sense of humor. And that's what you need for a long marriage. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, in any event, it was great reading about Bob that he's still doing stand-up at 90 because he gets a little charge out of it. It makes him nervous. Uh, and I guess uh, when you're 90, it's good to be nervous once in a while. It gives you a little energy. All right, so as I promised, we're going to close uh, with a great number, the, one of many outstanding numbers from Say Amen Somebody, the unforgettable, the inimitable, Jesus dropped the charges. This is uh, Dan Abuha. And Tamsin Granger. From Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. See you next week. I will
It's finished. It's finished. 